You're listening to a special episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Matheny. With me is author Raven Oak. Raven, thanks for joining me today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Folks might have listened today and realized that things are a little bit different. They didn't hear the regular sort of uh, introduction music. That's actually because we have a, a special episode today. Um, we're breaking from our usual format to bring you a special podcast panel featuring authors Kat Richardson, along with Raven Oak and Christy Cherish today. And we're discussing mental health and the arts. Uh, last March, the SFF community was shocked by the quick and sudden loss of author Logan Masterson at his own hand. Depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues are a delicate topic, but these conditions are a daily struggle for many, and back in April, we decided to put this panel together and have a conversation about these issues, because I believe it's really a discussion that needs to be had. Now, for extenuating circumstances, uh, we recorded in April, and for reasons that were kind of out of our control, Raven, we weren't able to get the episode out as we expected, but we are releasing it now. We're here today to talk about these issues. But Raven, I wanted to thank you for coming on today uh, for for doing this little introduction with me. It's actually been a few months since we recorded. Now, we're finally able to present it, and I wanted to just take a moment for you to maybe tell us a little bit about your friend Logan Masterson and maybe what's transpired since last March. Well, it's it's been fairly interesting because Logan seemed to be friends with a lot of people, which is a feeling that I did identify with. You know, when you're an author towards the beginning of your career and you only have a few books out, you suddenly find yourself in this world where you're Facebook friends with, you know, these big names that win awards. And you're like, holy cow, how did I get here? And I think that Logan and I definitely felt that uh, back in, in March when NorwestCon was happening, he is, his last messages to me on Facebook were him talking about how nervous he was about being a panelist at something like NorwestCon because it was such a big step forward for him, as was it for me. And his last messages were joking about how, you know, if, if he stuck his foot in his mouth, I was supposed to kick him under the table and, um, you know, make sure that he didn't embarrass himself and everybody else. And so, you know, that anxiety was there. And when he killed himself, you know, the whole community felt it because we all knew, hey, this is Logan. He's up and coming and we, we know this name. Um, but in the summer months after that, everything kind of settled. You know, the the GoFundMe to help his family funded. But I think for the most part, people have kind of forgotten, which is a little sad um, for those people who knew him. But it's also a stark reminder that we are a huge community and we lose people. And it's very easy to forget, I guess, that that these events happen and that they're important to talk about. So. For me, as far as an update, you know, I'd like to remind people, you know, people in our community are still suffering from various mental illnesses, and we still need to be there for them even months after an event. Yeah, 2016 overall has just been a rough year. Yes. No matter what sort of fandom that you're into, we've we've lost a lot of folks, even since March, since these events have transpired. It's just been... Uh, kind of a depressing sort of downer year. We've lost a lot of people, and even since this episode, even since we recorded this episode, I've I've had personal interaction with folks online on social media who've struggled with feelings of suicide, and I've had to reach out to people specifically who've been sort of down in the dumps, and I've had to reach out to these people. So, 
At the end of the episode, we talk about a few resources uh, that folks can check out. So I wanted to mention them at the beginning of the episode. If you don't have maybe time to take in the whole panel, that we it's a great discussion with Kat Richardson and, and Raven and Christy. But if you don't have time, we have a couple of links just to mention at the beginning of the podcast here. Um, two of those, uh, the first one is Project Semicolon. That's one that you're kind of involved with a little bit, right, Raven? Yes, uh, Project Semicolon was was started to remind people that no matter what's going on in your life or what horrible thing you think is, is worth killing yourself over, these are just moments in time. So as a writer, I totally identify with this because you have the idea of, of a semicolon being a pause. And that's all these events are, is no matter how horrific they are, they're just pauses your story and your life can still continue and can be better. So the person who started it was thinking along similar lines and started it to remind people that these are moments. And since then, it's become this this huge organization to make people more aware of mental health, um, which I think I talk about later in the podcast as well with the, the tattoos and people getting semicolon tattoos to remind themselves of where they've been and how far they've come. And that's project semicolon.org is the website folks can log on. They can find help. They can get involved, find events and things like that. So that's the first step that folks can, uh, can check out to, to get some help. Also, there is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Their phone number as well as 1-800-273-8255 for folks who might feel like they need some help. There are resources out there and we at least, Raven and I together, we wanted to put these tools in the, into folks' hands so that they can get the help they need or be able to reach out for folks maybe in the community who might need help as well. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Raven, with this podcast, if maybe one person is helped from making the wrong decision and make the right decision instead, I think we've done a good thing at the end of the day uh, with this panel podcast. Agreed. And something about that lifeline as well is it is available 24 hours a day. And if you're one of those people that your anxiety is like, I can't, I can't pick up a phone, they do have an online chat as well for getting help. So you can approach it from different uh, avenues, depending on your comfort level. Now, this was a great panel conversation. Um, Kat Richardson, of course, is a very popular urban fantasy author for folks who listen to our show regularly. She was featured in the Unbound anthology from Grim Oak Press, as well as uh, multiple urban fantasy titles. Uh, Raven, you, you are an uh, author as well? Yes, I am. And I typically write science fiction fantasy, though I have been told that my epic fantasy series is is if George R. R. Martin wrote Disney's Tangled. So I think that can <laughs> kind of dive into some of the darker fantasy areas. And for folks who want to check you out online, where are you uh, online, Raven? Uh, Ravenoak.net. And there's links at the top to all my social media stuff. So I'm I'm pretty much everywhere. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today and for joining us along with Kat and Christy and myself for this panel episode. And thanks for listeners for checking out this podcast today. Our condolences again to the Masterson family and special thanks to Kat and Christy and Raven today for joining us on the show. And thank you for listening. This is Christy Cherish and Rob Matheny. And today we're doing an episode on mental health and mental health in the arts. So it's... um. A sensitive topic for many people, but it's been one that's prominently featured in social media recently. 
We wanted to talk about it today in particular because of the effect it has on the arts community. And recently, as many of our listeners who are on the convention circuit might know, uh, Logan Masterson, a well-liked novelist who also ran games at NorwestCon, took his own life right after the convention to a lot of people's shock and surprise. Mental health in all of its aspects in the arts and SFF communities, it, it affects everybody, which is why we want to talk about it today. Hopefully by the end of the hour, we'll have a better idea of how to understand, identify, and help those dealing with these issues. And to help us in our discussion today, we have two very special guests. First, author Raven Oak. Hello. And author Kat Richardson. Hi. For our listeners who aren't familiar with you two, how how about uh, each of you introduce yourselves a bit and what it is you you write? Raven, let's start with you. Well, I'm a science fiction and fantasy author local to the Seattle area, and I've got a couple books out with a couple more. I'm, I'm one of those hybrid authors, and I'm also someone who myself suffers from mental illness and someone who also knew Logan, so here I am. Thank you again so much for joining us. And Kat, how about you introduce yourself? Okay, um, I'm a sort of multi-genre author. I write uh, science fiction, fantasy, and mystery principally. At the moment, I'm in between um, major projects. I wrote the Grey Walker series, and it came to a close a couple of years ago, and now we're trying to sell something else. And I've sort of fought off and on with various problems um, most of my life. And last year, because of some medical issues, I went through some really rough stuff. Unfortunately, I did not know Logan, um, but certainly the the, the sudden um, fatality by one's own hands of a member of the community is very shocking. And for the listeners as well, I'm just going to add some stuff to, to Kat's little intro there. Her urban fantasy series, the Greywalker series, it's a best-selling urban fantasy series. And as well, it was recently optioned for TV. Oh yeah, it was. Congrats. I just heard about that in February. That's that's um that's absolutely amazing. So oh, yeah. I just heard about it in February. I figured, yeah, no. <laughs> It's kind of the nature of the industry that sometimes you don't even know what's happening to your own stuff until um, the last minute or, or even after it's happened. And that's another thing that kind of may feed into the later discussion. One of the things that really struck me when we decided to put together the show was um, after we, we chatted with you, Raven, a bit. Mm-hmm. About um, about doing the show on mental health, and um, one of the things you you had recommended um, a, a number of other panelists, and um, uh, Kat was one of them. And when I I sort of jumped at it, I'm like, oh, I, I read the Grey Walker series. That would be awesome to have Kat on here. And then I just sort of jumped back and went, okay, how do I bro? And I just felt uncomfortable broaching the subject. I'm like, how do I write this email? How do I how do I broach? bringing, you know, bringing Kat on, on the show. And I've met you before and I, I, I know you. Why is there such a stigma surrounding the topic of mental health? Well, I think part of it is that um, we have this idea that absolutely everybody else in the world is normal and that if you display any kind of abnormality, it's a weakness and that weakness means that now the community at large can attack you like wild animals. And if you're already suffering from you know, anxiety or depression, the last thing you want to do is make yourself a target. Agreed. I think that, uh, you know, for many years, mental illness has been very misunderstood. We don't really understand completely why there are uh, brain chemistry imbalances that cause some of these issues. We just know that they are. 
And I guess it's almost human nature that anything we don't understand is scary. And I think Kat touched on that a little bit with the wild animals analogy, but... Hey, I, I'm willing to say crazy things like, you know, we're all, <laughs> we're a pack of wolves who are going to eat each other. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that that is, I think, why the stigma exists because, yeah, people don't, they don't recognize that I think everybody knows somebody. Oh, yeah. Um, just because this was coming up, I decided to go and, and look at the, the CDC and um, National Institutes of Mental Health uh, information on this. And it's really shocking what the percentage of people dealing with uh, mental illness is. I mean, just major depression alone, uh, 6.6% of the United States population suffers major depression. And that's almost 16 million adults. And yet we think that this is weird, this is strange, that it only happens to other people. Mm-hmm. And if it happens to you, that you're one of those other but for heaven's sakes, almost 16 million people in the United States alone. And that's just looking at adults. I think they have a really difficult time sometimes, I guess, diagnosing it in children or teenagers. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, it must be awful. Uh, I would hate to be a, a health professional of any kind trying to figure out exactly what's going on with anyone under the age of about 25. Yeah. And Raven Oak, you, you mentioned at the top of the interview, too, that mental illness is, is something that you have had to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, as well. Um, would you maybe, without divulging your entire <laughs> med- medical history, of course, um, maybe give us a little bit of a peek into how you manage the condition that you you deal with and maybe ha- have you had to deal with a stigma as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think for me, it's more of an anxiety and panic attack um, side of things rather than deep depression. But I think for me, I've been lucky enough that being part of the science fiction and fantasy community, which we'll get into a little bit more uh, later, but because so many of us do suffer when you're surrounded by people who understand and they understand that, Oh, Hey, you're having a panic attack. Let's take some deep breaths here and, and take a step back. They, they know how to interact with people with it better. I think than maybe the majority of the populace. And so having that kind of support system where, you know, my friends and my colleagues and such, understand really is a very huge help. Um, I, I, for me at least, and my husband also suffers from depression. And so I think in some weird ways, the fact that we both suffer from a mental illness, we understand each other better. So we're less likely to blame each other for something we know is, is, you know, depression lying to us or said in the moment of a panic attack, because those kinds of things, they're not always in your control. And I think those are, you know, two ways that I definitely deal with it. Um, I'm not always successful at it. I don't think anybody is. But, you know, you just surround yourself by people who care. And I think it's interesting. It does seem that the SFF community is somewhat uh, affected, um, almost heavily so. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe is that our our misperception, perhaps? Uh, there seems to be maybe a romantic mythos around the artist suffering and pain. And it's not new. It seems to be around for a while now um, with art and artists uh, what do you think the appeal of this myth is, and how do you think this myth differs from from men and women? We'll have Kat start on this topic. Well, I think that there is a little bit of an overstatement of it. I suspect that, especially with science fiction and fantasy authors, we have a tendency to want to use social media. Therefore, the information gets around a lot more, and it looks a lot more prominent. We're finally sort of coming out of the closet of not admitting that, that there might be a problem. So a lot more people are talking about it, especially lately. 
I think that there's an active move to destigmatize this by talking about it. So right now it looks like it's a much bigger problem. But there is also that romantic notion of, you know, the uh, the artistically suffering artist in their garret. And sometimes we kind of want to romanticize what we go through. And there's that desire to make it seem like there is something um, positive or magical about this instead of just that this is a disorder. And it's something that a lot of people live with. So it's sort of two sides of that, you know, talking more and also perpetuating a myth. But addressing the myth end of it, I do think that being creative might have, and I'm not a medical professional, so I'm not certain, but that it might have a connection to some of the other mental processes and biochemical processes that are associated with especially depression and anxiety, that the things that make us have this drive to create and to break out of the boxes and to think about the other and to express that in an accessible way to people outside of ourselves is connected at least a little bit to the same things that we call mental disorders. I would agree with that. Um, I think for me, when I was growing up with, with anxiety issues, you know, being able to read the science fiction and fantasy that I did was an escape mechanism. It was a chance to put myself in a different world and not have to be judged or labeled or, you know, deal with, you know, how do I deal with this? You know, I could be somebody else. And I think that writers in some way, we're drawn to that. We're drawn, not just writers actually, but all artists, we're drawn to creating art because it's an escape. It's a chance to be, you know, something other than you are. And I think that, you know, with the, the romanticized myth, you know, people, Sometimes I feel like people who say that aren't people who suffer. That maybe, you know, they're they're seeing it from an outsider's perspective of, oh, well, you know, you're just doing that for attention or you're just doing that because it's the cool thing to do. When in reality, as Kat said, it's really that social media has and, and technology in general has allowed us to be more open and more vocal in our discussions about this. So it's it's more in the foreground than it used to be. And I think that's really what we're seeing. Do you think the perception between men and women, either in the arts community or outside the arts community and, and mental health, do you think there's a, a, a difference or what differences do you guys think uh, there are expectations people have of mental health between men and women? Well, I think everybody has that idea that, that women are just a little bit flightier, mm-hmm. that we're just a little less stable than men. And the idea that this is somehow abnormal has always struck me as a little odd since the American population is 51% female. Therefore, if 51% of the population is just a little bit abnormal, I think that actually means that they're normal and everybody else is loopy. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's just my my personal opinion. But I think that when you, you look at disease or um, dysfunctions that are caused by biochemistry, you have to take into account, as unpopular as this may be, that women are constantly in a state of biochemical flux because part of our biological job is, you know, to produce and nurture and then to move on into that non-sexual nurturing afterward. And that means you're constantly changing your biochemistry. And that, of course, is going to make your emotional state a little weird. Well, and I mean, if you look back historically, I mean... I'm trying to stay PG-13 here, but, you know, women were often prescribed 
um, certain bedroom aids as a way to deal with I've depression. I've read about this. Yeah. yeah and mental yeah, illness. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And so women have, I guess, in some ways have always been seen as these people who, you know, instead of being depression in us, it's just that we don't have a man or it's just that we're flighty or, you know, whatever. It's, it's seen as a, a flaw in us rather than an illness. Yeah, the, the idea that there's a disease or it used to be counted a disease called hysteria, yes. which, uh, which comes from the Greek root, root history, uh, which refers to, you know, female reproductive parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're literally hysterical just because you're female and that men could not be hysterical because they didn't yep. have those parts. <laughs> yeah. And this, this, I, I, th- I think we can say, I, I think we can elaborate this without, you know, breaking the PG 13 and, you know, with our audience and Rob can always bleed it out later if he wants to. <laughs> but, um, the, the hysteria thing for, for people listening, I found out about this too recently and uh, just doing historical research, but they, this is where vibrators came from. Yes. Yep. That was how they were invented in order to be prescribed to women uh, who they felt were going, as, as you guys pointed out, they were going through hysteria. Um, and that of course was the, the, the cure-all, which is, is just bizarre. <laughs> yeah. If, if you've seen the film, they actually uh, called hysteria and it's actually very funny in parts and, and really depressing and horrifying in others. And yet looking at it from both a female and a historical point of view, they soft peddled a lot of the things mm-hmm. that were done even right up into the 1970s um, to women who were considered ungovernable because of their hysterical tendencies. Yep. On behalf of the male species, I would just like to <laughs> apologize. <laughs> Listening to the conversation too, I mean, there there is the conversation about um, <clears throat> kind of this uh, stigma or this reputation, I don't know, that, that women have for <laughs> the, the mental illness. But, you know, when I, when I think of, you know, when guys have it, um, when there's an air of mental illness or something about them, it's almost more an, an attractive thing, a, a brooding creative type. It doesn't, it, there's not as much as a negative stigma surrounding men or, or am I wrong on that? Well, I, I would argue, you know, having known my husband in high school that there's sometimes a stigma, especially I guess in, in male teenagers that are depressed that instead of being brooding, the other flip side to that is that they're these violent creatures that are going to, you know, kill everybody. Um, you know, case in point, I think, I think we were, I guess it was senior year of high school. You know, my husband had just lost his mother and he was having a rough time. And during lunch, he decided to kick a trash can. He didn't kick it far. He just kicked it because he was having a bad day. And the police officer at the school called the cops and they all wanted to arrest him for being violent and didn't really care at all that, you know, this is an individual who suffers from depression, who's had, you know, this horrible event happen in his life, who's struggling. Rather than get him help, let's throw him in jail. And we see that some with the mentally ill and the homeless population and in our veterans as well, that there's this stigma, especially with guys, that they're going to be violent and that they need to be jailed for their own protection and the protection of others. So I think sometimes you do see um, a pretty bad stigma in that term. Well, I think it depends on the outward expression of the problem with with men. 
Yeah, if they're if they're quiet about it, then they're you know the brooding bad boy type, and mm-hmm. we're all supposed to think they're kind of sexy, which is something which has always given me the creeps. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I I've got a, a background with with creepy guys, so that to me is not sexy. Yeah, but yeah, and then the violence thing, and especially in the last oh, twenty years or so, we've seen those expressions of violence by young men, and mm-hmm. it's now I think we're now hypersensitive. Yes. To the possibility that a small expression of frustration is actually lashing out violently. I wonder as well, and, and just thinking about what what you three have said um, with men, it's, it's almost there's a perception. I wonder if there's a perception um, in, in society sometimes where it's there's an acceptable there's an acceptability with women expressing um, depression, their emotions. Uh, but with guys, there's sometimes a perception or an expectation of the opposite, where they're not supposed to show any of their emotions or feelings or things that might be going on. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that contributes to just it, that contributes to it as well. The idea that you're supposed to bottle it up. Absolutely. Oh yeah, I agree. We've assigned men the the role of being, you know, stoic and and silent. And whenever they're not stoic and silent, you know, we, we have a tendency to act like there's something terribly wrong or something effeminate about that. Yeah, the old, old uh, saying goes, boys don't cry. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that probably we'd be better off if they did. Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess there's some research about um, the functions of crying and how we, when we cry, we are, we're undergoing several different biochemical actions. And that your tears and the the process of crying actually gets rid of this excess biochemical imbalance, or mm-hmm. or can at least contribute. And women are allowed that channel, and at least in a lot of um, modern American society, men are not. One of the things we've we've touched upon a bit in the conversation is the idea of the perception of mental health in the media, whether that be TV, film, the news, or even fiction. What does that perception look like to you guys or, or, or look like that we have right now? What, what do you think the manifestation of, of the perception of mental health is in the media? I think, uh, unfortunately, some of the, the gun violence in America has put this in the foreground um, in all of our media. But instead of, um, I guess, looking at what percentage of mentally ill people are contributing to gun violence the the gut reaction by a lot of media is to you know if they shoot somebody then you know oh they were mentally ill that's that's why they shot somebody and that's not always the reason why somebody does something so i think in some ways the media is actually contributing more to the stigma and the separation between you know what's perceived as normal and what's perceived as as somebody who's mentally ill oh yeah the media uh, both the nonfiction the news media and and what we present in fiction does have a tendency to want to make things black and white. It wants Mm -hmm. to make things sensational because news is no longer about information. It's now about selling product and the product unfortunately is not, you know, soap. It's human beings really. It's eyeballs. It's your attention. And so they're going to make it as sensational as possible. And, 
you know, it's more sensational to say, hey, this guy or this girl or this group is nuts than to say maybe there's a legitimate uh, beef here or maybe there's some underlying problem or maybe there is a bigger picture. Everything is sound bites. Everything is sensational. Everything Mm -hmm. is how many eyeballs can you get? How many books can you sell? Well, and in fiction, you know, this this came up at uh, the panel I was in at Emerald City Comic Con where in, you know, TV, movies, fiction, whatever media you want to talk about, mentally ill people are often villainized. You know, you look at somebody like the Joker, and they're supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be mentally unsound. If you look at our heroes, it's okay if they're disabled, if they are blind or deaf, those are acceptable disabilities. But to have a hero who is depressed, that's not considered acceptable. Um, So you don't really tend to see it very much because, again, the stigma is controlling the media is controlling, you know, what kind of stories are out there. And I think it's kind of sad that it's become, you know, part of a, a plot device almost that we villainize. Oh, yeah. Well, we've always had this, uh, you know, the the psychotic killer and um, the the mentally disturbed person who sets a train in motion. And even though we know that a lot of these things are or medical issues, really, we treat them as if there is some kind of magical monstrosity about it, that mm-hmm. this is different from a medical issue, that this is something that is, you know, laid upon you by some exterior, maybe even supernatural force that makes you good or evil, as if this is, you know, the mm-hmm. only range there is. And the same thing kind of happens with the gun issue in that the media has a tendency to kind of fetishize it, to make it into, you know, this all-powerful black or white thing because it's a very easy sell. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a great icon, you know, when you're trying to get your idea across as quickly as possible. You know, you, you give the bad guy a gun. Um, you know, you make him, you know, kick puppies. You know, he does or she does things that we automatically think of as bad because we've assigned bad to that object or that action without going any deeper into it. Although we do have, we do have an increasing number of, of heroes and heroines who are a little bit broken and messed up, and they're not necessarily the bad guy, but they are kind of bad. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Kat, because I, I, as, as both of you were, were talking, I, uh, I remembered uh, watching the Suicide Squads trailer that's going to be coming out, um, right. the movie coming out this summer, where, and, and as you mentioned, um, Raven with the Joker, there's also, of course, Harley Quinn, the sorceress, yeah. and, and they're portraying, and even in the trailer, it's, it's interesting because they're not quite bad guys, but they're definitely portraying them in a, in, in a, I, I guess, in a disturbed way. Oh, yeah. And, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the character in uh, in Hellboy, his girlfriend who... Oh, yes. Yeah. Why is her name slipping my mind? And because she has difficulty dealing with her own abilities, she is committed. Actually, she commits herself for a while. She's in and out of mental institutions, and she considers herself crazy and dangerous. But the rest of the team considers her, you know, pretty much part of the team. And yeah, being a little bit wacky, it just goes with the territory. But that's a kind of a different take on that. But it's amazing how often, especially among comic book characters, we see that trope of mental illness and the asylum as the the place where both good and evil are bred. Yeah. Now, have either of you taken on directly this topic in in either of your prose fiction? Have you had any characters who dealt with these issues? 
Oh, I think all of my characters are a little bit um, off the beam. I've actually got some stuff in the works that's a lot more gruesome and horrible, but it hasn't found a, a publisher yet. But I, I have uh, touched a little bit on things like post-traumatic stress and depression and I brushed across um, forms of schizophrenia in, in a couple of characters. But I haven't gone very deep into it because I think you have to approach it with a heck of a lot of respect. And it's very difficult. You, you don't just throw it out there uh, and, mm-hmm. and just use it as, as an iconic trope and say, you know, this is, this is my shorthand for something. And doing the research to do it well is also putting yourself kind of out on a limb. It can be really scary to go Absolutely. there and ask questions. Well, and I've, I've played with it a bit in, in uh, one of my trilogies, and uh, it's actually kind of been interesting because recently I read, yeah, I, I did the bad thing and read a review. Um, but oh, you poor thing. <laughs> in the review, they were upset with uh, my main character, Adelaide, because she is an assassin and she's 19, and she has this emotional breakdown with PTSD. And it was one of those things that when I was writing it, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, when you're 19, you think you know everything. You really do. And you can be really good at something, but you're still human. And I wrote her intentionally with the emotional baggage she had, which, you know, certain events end up triggering PTSD and and further dissolvement of, of who she is as a, as a person on purpose, because I was exploring what that's like for people. Because when your whole world is crumbling, you know, it, it would be great if people could understand better what people who go through PTSD, what that looks like, and how you treat it and how you deal with it. And how, you know, those people that are going through these mental illnesses, we're still people, you know, behind that keyboard, when you're typing, and not really thinking about the consequences of what you're saying, Everybody else is still a person and they are going to have emotional range. So yeah, I've definitely written about it and and plan to write more about it because my hope is that it will help other people understand what their coworkers or their family members or their friends are going through when they're going through these things. One one thing too, Kat, I'm 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 just thinking about the Greywalker series. In your in your case, Harper Blaine, you put her through some really tough stuff. So Yeah. It comes so any any of the problems she has because she basically for readers who or for listeners who haven't touched on the series it's uh, she's a Seattle bi pi who's beaten left for dead and then when she recovers finds out that she can step into the world that's sort of between the land of the living and the land of the dead and monsters and um, any any of the problems she have come about very um, organically. I took a lot of flack, actually, early on. Uh, some of the reviewers said, you know, she was chilly and inaccessible. She had no friends. She was unpleasant. And o- over the course of nine books, she has a, a very long character development arc where she goes from being someone who is actually very shut down and um, very isolated, and she does it deliberately, to someone who is much more open and much more friendly. And I kind of based that both on myself and other people that I knew because you know, if you've been through horrifying things when you're younger, you have to keep functioning. And so you find coping mechanisms. And sometimes those coping mechanisms look like arrogance or coldness or, um, or a social misfit, or that you just don't want to be your antisocial, you don't want to be with people. And that isn't always really 
what you're feeling, that's what you're expressing because it's the way to be safe. And mm-hmm. that was sort of where I put Harper, you know, because she's had kind of an emotionally abusive relationship with her mother, her father committed suicide, and then this horrible thing happens to her. And over and over again, people do awful things to her, and she keeps picking herself up and, and going forward because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And in talking to people, uh, myself, about my own uh, problems, one of the things that I've been told over and over again is women especially go through uh, trauma, and they just keep on marching forward until finally they're at a comparatively safe place and that's when they fall apart. That mm-hmm. um, the mental function of protection forces us forward until we reach a safe zone and that's where we come apart. And it becomes very difficult for people who've never been in that situation to recognize that you're not being dramatic, but you're finally safe enough mm-hmm. to make yourself vulnerable and break down. And, and that can and be that, hard on, on the observer. That can be very difficult for someone who is watching you, especially if, if they love you. And that illustrates as well, like that, that, that kind of character arc and that, that kind of um, that insight, it sort of goes beyond that black and white issue of, of mental health issues or, or um, you know, disease versus, versus normal to just show mental health in its manifestations in general and how people cope with everyday situations. It, it, it's an interesting insight. <laughs> Well, I think it's one of the things that makes things like what happened with Logan very strange to someone who's never experienced that internal despair, is you think, oh, he was fine yesterday. Why did this happen? And it's because he got past, my guess would be, that someone in his situation gets past the immediate stress of something they feel they have to do, and having put their house in order, they then feel that it's okay to leave. Speaking of the incident with Logan, you know, social media plays a huge role in everyday life today. And there's no doubt that it can be both a danger and a help to those struggling with mental health. For both of you, how do you think social media plays a role today? And I think, Raven, you may have some insight to this because with, with the Logan incident, he had a kind of a last minute plea. He did. You know, I love social media in that it's given me a chance to reconnect with old friends. And there's there's certainly positive to it. And as writers, you know, it's great for promotion. But at the same time, I really struggle with social media. I, I think that it is uh, destroying our society to some extent in that we feel safe behind the keyboard. We feel like we are invincible and we can say whatever we want. And people forget that on the other side of what you're saying is someone who's human, who feels things. And if they're depressed, what you say may or may not have a huge impact on them, as was the case with Logan. Um, He made a a last cry for help. And people who know him like much better than I knew him were saying things like, oh, you'll get over it, you know, chin up and the kinds of comments that they meant well. I mean, they were his friends and they truly meant well, but they didn't know that in the state he was in, that that comes off as, you know, belittling how he felt. And there were consequences for saying that. And they're not to blame at all for Logan making this choice. But we, as people, when we're typing things, we do forget that there are consequences for what we're typing. And whether we meant things to happen or not, sometimes tragedies like Logan happen. 
Well, it's very difficult with um, social media that is predominantly text only. Yes. And, you know, even here we're just talking, but we're still getting a lot more context because you can hear my voice and my inflection and, and where I stumble and where I pause. Whereas when you're looking at a text message, even with emojis, you don't really know what's going on out there exactly. in someone's head. Very true. And you can't necessarily always distinguish how someone intended something to be said either. You know, someone could have very well have been saying, oh gosh, Logan, I'm really sorry. You know, chin up. We'll talk about this tomorrow and, and meant it that way. And he could have perceived it a whole different way just because you don't hear the tone of voice that people are speaking with when it's text. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what could be meant as encouragement sounds like a brush off. Yep. And is there a problem with individuals seeking counsel via social media? It's, it's one of those things that runs both ways. It depends on who's watching you at that moment and how you reach out. But of course, when you're in a bad state, you're not always paying a lot of attention to how you express yourself. You're just expressing. If you have friends who know what your situation is or have a good idea, who are very observant, then hopefully they're going to be able to reach out to you in a way that's helpful. But, you know, there's also a million other people watching you and some of them are just not nice. And they'll take a swing at you because that's what they do. And that's not going to help you. Well, and I think beyond that, too, because everybody can use Wikipedia, and they can use Google, and they're like, gee, what do my symptoms mean? Uh, <laughs> we do have a lot of, you know, backseat doctor going on. You know, I saw it yesterday in a, a community uh, group on Facebook where somebody's dog was having an issue. And she was asking for medical advice for her pet, and her pet needed to go to the ER immediately. <laughs> and it was like, why are you asking strangers yeah. who don't have a vet degree? And I think there's yeah. some of that as well with, with mental illness online is that sometimes in the same way that I feel like the science fiction and fantasy community, you know, is my family and they understand that, you know, I have anxiety at the same time, you can get too used to that. And then it's a crutch of help me through this. Give me advice. Tell me what to do rather than seeking professional medical opinion, which would be the better step. It would definitely be a, a good idea, uh, but we do. We also have that stigma about seeking professional help because yes. that implies that you're broken. Yeah. And although you know, to a certain degree, we we all recognize that we must be a little bit broken because we don't fit that perfect mold. Because that's that's a complete and total, you know, lie. There is no perfect person who is you know perfectly stable and perfectly healthy. But we have the idea that we should be, and going to especially a mental health professional is like saying you're broken to begin with instead of, hey, I'm having a little problem and I'm going to a doctor. Mm -hmm. It's, hey, I'm broken and I'm going to the loony bin. <laughs> and I've been yeah. struggling with that myself this past year um, after you know the major surgery and, and so on, went through a lot of big biochemical changes because, you know, basically you spend 12 hours on an operating table, things get a little weird. <laughs> and, you know, kept trying to find a doctor. And because I live way out in the sticks at the moment, actually never found one. Never did manage to go and see a mental health professional for the, the issues I was having because there wasn't one available in my area who actually filled the need I had and that my insurance would cover. So I ended up just kind of powering through it and uh, got lucky in that I was able to reach a stage where that was an acceptable action, but it was hard and it was probably not smart on my part. 
Well, and again, that brings up the point of, you know, people are assuming that if somebody's mentally ill, that they not only have someone in their area they can find, but again, that they have insurance at all. And when you look at the large population of homeless and veterans that do suffer from some sort of, you know, PTSD or mental illness, a lot of them don't have insurance. So how do you get treatment and help when you don't even have the tools you need to do so? Well, it's such an issue with people who are self-employed. You know, mm-hmm. like a lot of artists are, is a lot of times you don't have any insurance or you've got minimal insurance. And although health care is mandated under the current mandatory insurance clauses, they don't say exactly what kind of health care or how you're supposed to be able to get it or, you know, whether or not it's going to be paid for mm-hmm. or paid at a certain percentage. You're, you're kind of shooting craps there and, and hoping that you don't come up snake eyes on this. It's fascinating, too. Like, I mean, this concept, if... um I have a science background and, you know, in a lot of ways, if you were showing symptoms of diabetes, mm-hmm. you automatically go like it's society wise. It's well, you need to go and, and get treated for diabetes. Um, you need the insulin in order, you know, in order to survive, in order to process sugar. It's, it's, it's sort of a logical step yet. We have difficulty with that step when it comes to biochemistry, which is it is really what it is. It's biochemistry of of the brain. It's neurons firing. Mm-hmm. it's 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 another organ of the body. yet we have a very hard time to we 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 have a very hard time comparing a, a pancreas to the brain and and they really are just different organs of the body, yeah. and um you know we we act as if this whole thing is, you know, oh, it's it's something you made up. Um, I had a a conversation a long time ago with my husband, right about the time we got married, I said something about, you know, depression. And at the time he said, I don't think depression really exists. I think that's something that um, lazy people use as an excuse to not do stuff. And I yep. almost punched him. <laughs> um, so, you know, this last year going through all of this stuff, I was really having a hard time. And at one point I said, why is this so hard? And he said, because you're depressed. Yep. And I thought that's a huge change over, you know, the 20 plus years now that we've been married from, I think this is something that you use to avoid work to the problem is that you're depressed. Yeah. But it took 20 years of living with someone who's been dealing with this all of her life. And not, I'm not, I don't have severe problems. I have mild problems, but that's still enough to change someone's mind when they actually have to see that process. Well, and he's somebody who loves you. So of course he's going to work at that process. But complete strangers, complete you know, strangers if, online, yeah, yeah, they're they're not gonna if they've never been around this, they're not necessarily going to understand that this is a real thing. And depression is so good at lying to you and telling you everything you need to hear to make it worse. Oh, and yeah. so you just downward spiral if you're not you know aware of some of the the medications and coping mechanisms and things that are out there to help treat it. When people put a lot of these things all into one category, you know, we kind of throw PTSD in with depression and PTSD is an anxiety disorder most of the time. But since it's a syndrome, it's got a whole bunch of other stuff on top of it. There's a whole bunch of anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder and specific um, anxiety and panic attacks and OCD. Those are all on the anxiety side. Mm -hmm. But you know, the depression side looks like something else and it's got a and then there are those weird mental conditions that luckily are fairly rare, things like uh, schizophrenia and uh, various psychoses. Um, and they're, they're a spectrum. You can be just a little bit off that particular um, measure and 
be perfectly functional but a little odd, or you can be clear over in the, oh my goodness, we need to put you someplace where you can't hurt yourself and others. And yet we act like it's all one thing, you know, and that it's all the same, and that if you just give someone the right pill, they're going to be fine. And that's not the way it's going to work. Yeah, it seems we, we try to simplify the absolute complexity of, of the human mind. Yeah. And as Raven said earlier, you know, everybody wants to look it up online and, <laughs> and, and get that, that easy answer from WebMD. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's, the medical, it's the medical degree by, via Wikipedia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Google is not our friend. <laughs> no. I think what we're shooting for ultimately at the end of the day today is, is empathy for individuals and ideally being able to help those in need and help ourselves if, if we're in need as well. Um, I remember I had a conversation with a, a coworker before and he, was, he gave me the best illustration for understanding what PTSD was because he was an Iraq war veteran. And he talked about, could you imagine living 24-7 with the endless feeling in your gut that anybody could kill you at any moment, that there's bullets literally whizzing by your head by inches on a daily basis and imagine that heightened state of awareness day after day after day and then go back into normal civilian life and try to function normally. And that really kind of opened up my eyes to what exactly PTSD even begins to to feel like and what that anxiety, how severe that anxiety can be. So I think with our conversation today, ideally I would like for listeners to be able to take away maybe a couple of tips to be able to help themselves or help others in need. So for both of you, both Kat and Raven and even Christy, I think we'll maybe chime in on this too, but maybe just talking about some best practices for being able to support the people in our lives who are dealing with mental health issues. Oh, I think the big thing is, you know, to be a little bit um, thoughtful and um, as, as much as I think it's an overused phrase, to be a little bit mindful of the state of the person that you're, you're looking at if they're expressing an issue and also to examine your own state which is very difficult. Um, you know, take a beat before you, you make a response to someone. You know, don't automatically write them off. Engage in a little more empathy. I know that it's hard, but if you have to, then perhaps if you're overwhelmed, then limiting your input to those you do feel more comfortable with, those you, you feel that you can trust, even in a terrible situation, as someone who is suffering, that that's a good idea is... Um, you know, upon occasion to step back. And if you are observing someone who is suffering, recognizing that they don't necessarily need uh, a million people on them, they just need um, the sensitivity of a few. I would agree with that and add that, uh, you know, again, remembering that we're all people. And so we all have feelings. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just be patient, be there. You know, you don't have to always follow everything somebody says up with an answer. Sometimes just listening is what people need. And it seems so incredibly simple, but that's really what it is. You know, when people are anxious, if they're depressed, if something's going on, they need to know that they're safe and that they can say things and not have a negative reaction out of the people around them. Yeah, not every comment that you make on social media requires an answer. Yeah. Hmm. And that, and that was actually following up to my question was that we, we've sort of touched on how people will often express themselves on social media like Facebook or Twitter. And what are some best practices for, for interacting with people who, who are expressing them, their you know, um, problems they might be having on social media? Well, I'd start with how well do you know them, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know in, in real life. 
do you think you have a relationship that's close enough to these people that you can give and take with that? Obviously, you know, you see someone who you have a lot of admiration for and they're suffering, but they may not be able to take that in. And if you yourself are, you know, suffering, if you can express that I'm just venting (laughs) or I really do need help, not, you know, not that stuff. (laughs) Please don't give me WebMD. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I, I agree with that. I think Logan definitely had a lot of very close friends. He had a wife. He had family. He had people who cared about him very, very much. And he still was not able to take that in, that enough people cared and ultimately decided that people didn't. And so, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with people who want to cling to somebody who want help, who want to cry out for help, the best thing you can do is do what Kat said, you know, look at yourself and how well do you know these people? You know, are you a good enough friend that you can have that conversation with them? Or are you needing to do the thing where you're like, well, hey, you know, I'm sorry that you're suffering. Here's a hotline. You know, is there anything else I can do for you? But being aware that you might not be able to say anything or help them and you might not be the right person to do so. Yeah. And knowing, uh, as Raven said, if you've got a resource that you can pass on and you think that you're seeing, you're viewing someone, even if you don't know them very well, who needs that resource, that may be the only outreach you can actually do at that point. But even if it's not to that stage, letting someone know that there are resources for them, if it is at that stage, mm-hmm. can be helpful. Yep. And then sometimes, you know, oddly enough, people do need the ears of a stranger. Yeah. You know, I know that we had somebody approach us after our panel at Comic-Con and, you know, this gentleman needed resources and wanted to share information with us that was incredibly personal. And when he was done, he felt a lot better just having said it to a stranger who wasn't necessarily going to judge him. Well, that's why people have therapists because, you know, they're they're neutral parties. They're someone who is not emotionally engaged who can step back a little. Personally, I I think that um, therapy should probably be a lot cheaper and a lot easier to get. Exactly. And a lot less stigmatized, it would certainly make our lives a lot easier. Agreed. And I would Absolutely. I would add that, you know, as writers, you know, you do have to be careful because you do have readers and sometimes readers will approach you and say the weirdest things and <laughs> sometimes it is that yeah. they need help. But you have to be careful where you put yourself in that process of help. Yeah, you you do have to tread a little bit carefully because as a creative individual who is facing an audience, you are one individual broadcasting. But every member of that audience is looking for a chance to reflect on you. And that's a lot of stuff. And how you respond to all those reflections can be very delicate. Um, Hopefully, you as a creative professional are able to be empathetic without, you know, drowning yourself, which is difficult. You know, you do have to have a, there is a point at which you just have to draw a line and say, "I, I can't offer you any more help than this, please step back. And then you feel like a jerk. And then, Raven, you mentioned uh, before, too, your support of the Semicolon Project as well. Yes. Um, Could you highlight some of the aspects of of that organization and how they're helping folks deal with the mental illness? Well, I think uh, originally it started with one person who was suffering from depression and was having suicidal thoughts. And I don't know if her therapist said it or if it was somebody else who said it to her, but the idea that when you're reading a sentence and you come across a semicolon, that's not the end of the sentence. That's a pause. It's a moment and it goes on to the next part. And our lives are a lot like that. Whereas if you're suffering from depression or something horrible, the moment that you're in right now, it's a moment. It's a pause. 
and it's not the end of your story and it doesn't have to be. And so they started up the organization again to raise awareness for mental illness, but also to remind people who are suffering that there are resources out there. There are people like you that suffer and this does not have to be the end of your story. What you write and what you do with it is your choice. So they do a lot of outreach with, again, just, you know, trying to help people get the help they need, but also to let them connect, you know, I guess similarly like AA, where you can connect with others that are suffering in the way that you are so that you know you're not alone. And that uh, URL for that is projectsemicolon.org for folks who want to check that out. They can find more resources as well. Well, actually, I did want to make one more comment on topic. Okay. Um, okay. Last year when I was going through a lot of this stuff, I was having uh, a lot of problems. And I was talking online and didn't realize how how much I had talked about how depressed I was until another writer friend started sending me private messages. Didn't have any idea just how bad it was until someone else said, I've noticed that you seem to be saying these things a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was the point at which I started talking to my doctor. So as someone who is suffering, having um, a reality check from someone that you know and trust is a worthwhile and wonderful thing. So I wanted to say thanks to Ari Marmel for that. We'll wrap up with Kat and Raven. We will let you tell us your contact information if you have any con appearances coming out and, and any any forthcoming projects coming out anytime soon. Um, so Kat, if you wanted to go first, you could give us a, a, anything that you have com- forthcoming from, from your neck of the woods. Anthologies coming out. Um, uh, the, the most recent one was Unbound out of uh, Grim Oak Press. That came out in December. Shadowed Souls should be coming out in, uh, I believe it's November. And before that, Urban Allies, edited by Jonas Cease. I did a short story cooperatively with uh, Katie Murphy, and that's going to be out in July. Uh, I'm involved in a Kickstarter from Apex Publications called Upside Down, uh, Inverted Tropes in Storytelling. I got to write about chainmail bikinis. (laughs) (laughs) And I just... uh, dropped a story with Hex Publishing in Colorado uh, called Card Sharp, and that'll be coming out sometime very late in the year, as far as I know. Uh, Also, there is the television option with uh, Back Alley Productions in uh, Montreal, Canada, uh, which we hope will go ahead. They're they're doing um, pre-production stuff, but we hope it'll actually go further than that. And I've still got a novel shopping, which I hope someone will someday buy. It was science fiction and includes a character who's really messed up <laughs> and another character who suffers from PTSD. But at the moment, there's a lot of um, catch-up from having spent basically a year convalescing. So I'm still playing catch-up. And I get to hang out with uh, Raven Oak and a bunch of other really great um, Seattle area women. And we get to crit each other. And that's actually been brilliant having you know that support and working with a really great crit group has really helped put these projects forward yay yay well um i can be found online at ravenoak.net and as far as upcoming stuff i've got a mask and swore so that's book two in my series and the eldest silence slated for late winter 2016, 2017, somewhere in there. I'm behind a little bit from moving. And I've got a story coming out in September in an anthology called Untethered. I'm going to be at Jet City Comic Show in November in Tacoma. That's what I'm up to this year. Yay! Very cool. Well, it's been great having this conversation today. I've been looking forward to this, actually, ever since we, Christy and I kind of threw around the topic and said, this is something that we really want to talk about. 
And I think this is a conversation that's going to continue to to be had. And uh, for folks who are listening to the show and who maybe have a story to share, uh, we're willing to listen too. Uh, if, if you're a creative or an author and, and this is something that you had to deal with or there's some sort of resource or something that you would suggest uh, for us that we can share, um, you can hit us up on our social media feeds at either your Facebook uh, or Twitter. We'd be willing to, to hear from you and keep this conversation going because it's a conversation that needs to, to continue and to be had and, and we're awareness needs to continue and uh, in the show notes uh, for the program be sure to check out uh, project semicolon as well for resources but it's been a great conversation ladies today and it's great to get your insights and and, and share your perspective on these things so thank you again for joining us absolutely no